This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the Friday night edition of the program. Happy to be here with you. Our phone number, if you want to join us, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is the number. And of course, the big news of the day, United States Senator representing New Jersey, Bob Menendez, has been indicted on bribery charges. And uh, we're going to get to that uh, momentarily uh, with the... Uh, former chief of the organized crime division of the Department of Justice. And I want to go over a couple of other things, too, because there's a few other things happening in the news. And I want to spend time on that and recap what happened in the week. And there's plenty to talk about. Uh, but as we uh, kick off the weekend here, we've got uh, Stephanie Rule. She was on MSNBC today. And, and she says that Putin and Trump they're going to be more dependent on one another in 2024 than we saw in the last election. Now, I don't necessarily um, agree with this statement. Um, I mean, I'm not outright refuting it. I, I don't think P Putin is dependent on Trump, and I don't think P uh, Trump is dependent on Putin. But I do know, and as you guys know, and many of you take exception to, that there are a bunch of um, pro-Putin patriots out there that uh, these they absolutely love Putin. You know, like I, I bump into them all the time. The other day I was having coffee and and this is someone I know really well, very close to me. And, and he was like, well, you know, you know, um, there's no BLM in Russia. <laughs> there's no transgender madness in, in Russia. There's no LGBTQ story time in Russia. And I was like, why aren't you in Russia, sir? Why have you not moved there if it's such a great bastion of liberty? And... And he was like, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, when Putin says that, you know, uh, he comes at America and he says, you know, he talks sideways about America because we're allowing all these things to happen. And I was like, yeah, so who cares? It doesn't matter to me if somebody's going to criticize America and point out our flaws. I point out our flaws in, in this country every single day. So does that mean that I have to like Putin because he's calling out some of the things that I call out? Of course not, especially when you know how Putin operates. Right. And again, some of you are listening right now and you're shaking your head and you're saying, you know, Rich, I like your show. But when you rail on Putin, I don't know. I just got to change the channel. That's OK. Uh, good luck. But what I will say is this. I don't I don't like Putin because he dislikes the problems in America. And, and for the simple fact that he is a propagandist. Now, of course, I've been accused of being a propagandist as well. 
<laughs> but I can prove to you that he is one because I've never worked for the KGB or the GRU. I've never been uh, one of the top spies in Russia, but he has. You know, my grandfather didn't work for Stalin, but his did. Now, I'm not going to hold all of that against him. But the reality is, whenever you have an enemy, an adversary, somebody you got to watch, and you see a fissure, a slight chink in the armor, what do you do? You go at it. You keep chipping away. You keep chipping away. You keep chipping away. So clearly America has problems. And he's just trying to, to turn these, these fissures into, into craters so that he can continue to fracture things. Now, put yourself in Putin's shoes. If you see in America that there are some problems, what do you do? You try to exacerbate them by creating social media accounts, by getting your operatives to get people to do things, right? A couple of months back, maybe almost a year ago, there was a teacher in California that got into, uh, you know, an undercover thing. Uh, somebody recorded him, high school teacher, and I forget his name, but you could find this easily. It was a James O'Keefe video. And uh, they caught this teacher talking about the LGBTQ movement and um, saying things that were, you know, just out of the ordinary. And he, I think that he was suspended from his position. I don't know if he was permanently fired, but he was eventually uh, removed because they found that he wasn't really teaching class, but he was giving a whole lot of extra credit uh, after he was just, you know, politically indoctrinating his students giving them extra credit to show up at Antifa rallies and other pro-communist, um, progressive things. And I'm not saying pro-communist to be, to be provocative or that that's how I call them. You know, like when people call and go, I don't know why you call them Democrats. You should call them all communists. That's what they are. They're commies. I get that. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that this guy, when they caught him and they confronted him on the undercover video, he was wearing a hot pink, extremely oversized tank top. And on the tank top was emblazoned a hammer and a sickle. He is a communist. Not because I say he's one, because he says he's one. I don't wear a t-shirt that has a hammer and a sickle. I wear a t-shirt with an American flag because I am an American. So when people show you who they are, believe them the first time, right? That's Maya Angelou who said that. I believe that. So this guy is a communist who is in the education system, who's trying to recruit young people to join his movement by way of progressive politics, the LGBTQ movement, trying to create allies, etc. And I say allies in air quotes. Now, when you have a situation like that, then what, what does Putin do? You find more of those people. You start flooding our social media airwaves, if you will, our social media feeds with more of that content. The more outlandish, the better. And you continue to, to flip these people and get more people to, to do more of this. Don't think we don't do that in other countries, right? For years, we've been criticized for interfering in other countries' politics and regimes and elections with uh, what they what, what, pro-democracy propaganda, regime change, right? These are all charges that were made against the United States that I would say are true. So then why is it not the same true or why is the same not true when somebody says that Vladimir Putin and the GRU and the KGB, the new, the new KGB, their intelligence operation, are working to create fissures in America and turn them into chasms? 
Of course it's true. So when somebody tells me, oh, but, you know, in Russia, they don't have what in Russia, they also don't have uh, nearly as diverse of a population as we do here. Everybody wants to say it's a capitalist country. There's freedom. I mean, they make it sound like it's America, but it's not. And when I say like it's America, I don't mean that we're perfect. We're not perfect. All you got to do is read a few articles anywhere and you'll see we're not perfect. But just because we're not perfect doesn't mean that we're not the best that there is. And I, I mean that in everything, it, the best place to live. I don't care what these polls say that, you know, Americans have voted the UK the, the best place to live. I just don't care. I don't think that's accurate, uh, in my opinion. And again, these are subjective things based on one's opinion. I don't think that I could get on the airwaves in, you name the country, I don't think I could do that anywhere but here. I don't think that I could raise my kids the way I want to anywhere but here. I don't think I could pick whatever doctor I wanted to anywhere but here. And even that is becoming a fleeting process. So when people come at America or promote Putin, I just ask you, think twice and ask yourself his motivation and whether or not some of the problems that he's talking about, he himself is not creating in this country. More after this. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Uh, by the way, your ratings are up. Congratulations, Anthony. It's always nice to check. I like to see, even if they're friends, I like to see how are they doing? Are people listening, right? That's but right. You're, you're doing great. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Today I'm announcing that my office has obtained a three-count indictment charging Senator Robert Menendez, his wife Nadine Menendez, and three New Jersey businessmen, while Hannah, Jose Uribe, and Fred Davies for bribery offenses. The investigation that led to these charges has been run out of the Southern District of New York. The indictment alleges that between 2018 and 2022, Senator Menendez, the senior U.S. Senator from New Jersey and the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and his wife, Nadine Menendez, engaged in a corrupt relationship with Hanna, Uribe, and Davies. The indictment alleges that through that relationship, the senator and his wife accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes in exchange for Senator Menendez using his power and influence to protect and to enrich those businessmen and to benefit the government of Egypt. The indictment alleges that Hana, Uribe, and Davies provided bribes in the form of cash, gold, home mortgage payments, a low-show or a no-show job for Nadine Menendez, a Mercedes-Benz, and other things of value to the senator and his wife. Of course, that's Damian Williams. He is the United States attorney representing the Southern District of New York at a press conference today, announcing a three-count indictment into uh, Senator Robert Menendez, who represents New Jersey. And uh, I hail from New Jersey nowadays. I've, I've met Senator Menendez on a couple of occasions. Pretty serious guy. 
and uh, definitely didn't like me, <laughs> never liked me. Maybe I'll tell you more on that story later. But uh, I want to get to the bottom of this because uh, th- this is an old story, right? It's a new story, but it's an old story. He was uh, investigated way back when, has been under investigation for quite a while, and it seems like nothing ever goes anywhere. And some allege that this was a political retribution because he was um, being um, obstacular, if you will, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to then-President Obama, and that Obama then tried to set him up with some charges. Don't know how true any of that was, but I wouldn't put it past either of these guys. And with us uh, to uh, break it down and help us understand what's going on is the former chief of the organized crime section at the Department of Justice, spent 28 years as a prosecutor, and he's a member of the law firm IFRA Law, James Trusty. Jim Trusty, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. So uh, I'd like to get your reaction to this and, and to help us understand, because um, I think, you know, when you hear these things, I, I can just imagine uh, the senator saying, I'm going to be vindicated. I, you know, I'm innocent. My wife did show up to work. She was working from home because of COVID. It wasn't a no-show or low-show job. I, uh, the, I got gold because the guy owed me money or, you know, he's going to come up with some story to try and normalize this. But uh, it seems like there's more to it than meets the eye. What say you? Well, I mean, a couple of things. You know, the starting point is that, you know, I, I heard the snippets from the press conference, and I think about how DOJ has conducted itself across the board over the last few years on high-profile cases. And it, it really strikes me that, like, these indictments, the reason they are speaking indictments, the reason they're so vivid and full of details is because it lets the prosecutor stand up in front of the cameras and say, I'm just saying what's in the indictment. (laughs) I mean, when I was a a baby prosecutor many years ago, I would Mm -hmm. do murder cases where it was a one-page indictment. You know, you literally say so-and-so premeditatedly killed so-and-so. There are legal reasons why it makes sense and tactical reasons why it makes sense to have all these kind of details. But I think a lot of it is just kind of a political shot across the bow. It's telling the world hey, this is a real prosecution, a heavily investigated case. And and I think if you look at this indictment carefully, it's got some kind of common threads that you see in a lot of these types of cases that are going to be very difficult for Menendez. Remember, six years ago, he got a hung jury and eventually walked on the New Jersey federal case. So I I don't expect that he's going to go quietly into the night. But DOJ focuses on, you know, one thing in all these public corruption cases, which is unexplained wealth. And Rich, they talk about $486,000 cash in his house, 80000 in a safety deposit box. And I think the highlight of the whole thing are these gold bars, two one-kilogram gold bars with about 60000 bucks each, and then some other things and mortgage payments and exercise machines. I mean, this is, you know, you go back to like Paul Manafort and the ostrich feather coat. DOJ prosecutors salivate when they have stories of wealth and unexplained wealth, and that's what they seem to really uh, focus on heavily in this indictment. Now, you mentioned something that I think makes um, uh, what well, it, it stood out to me, uh, Jim Trusty. You mentioned that there was a hung jury in the New Jersey federal case, and of course, he's a, 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 a resident of New Jersey, he's a senator from New Jersey, and I think a lot of this stuff happened in New Jersey. Uh, is the reason that this uh, indictment comes out of the Southern District of New York because they felt that his senatorial courtesy and his, you know, yay or nay on the appointment of judges and whatnot uh, would influence the prosecution? I think it's a possibility, but you have to remember that, you know, Manhattan is, as they, as they 
only half jokingly call themselves the sovereign district of New York. You know, they view almost everything as an open case for Manhattan prosecutors. And, you know, when you drill down, you say, how did you have this case for so long? Oh, we opened up a case against, you know, crime. I mean, they'll just kind of take anything they can get. The, the venue thing is an easy lift in federal court when you talk about the banking industry being involved. And so uh, you'll see scattered through the indictment comments about, oh, this was involving a man, you know, a New York based bank. And that usually gives them enough of a hook, even if a lot of the literal physical conduct took place in New Jersey. Now, you also mentioned uh, the common thread that you see in similar cases. Uh, so similar bribery cases. And again, I, I don't know a ton of these cases, but um, I'm inclined to think yeah, that sounds like New Jersey politics to me. You know, I, I worked in the state house in the Christie administration and I saw how things worked uh, in, in, not in Washington and Trenton. And I can tell you that so much impropriety is normalized. And uh, they tried to put it aside when there was a new administration in town, especially it was a Republican administration. And Christie was, had this reputation of being a hard hitting prosecutor. So th- there was a, you know, kind of a pause on a lot of that, but internal, the internal uh, machinations in government in New Jersey remained the same, uh, very much like uh, what many call the deep state in Washington. And uh, to me, this sounds normal. I mean, I've seen this even at the local level. I've seen local mayors that are getting their pools done and having pavers added because they gave X, Y, and Z company a contract to pave the roads in in their town. And then they get this kickback where they get all this, you know, nice stuff uh, done on their own home. And it's so commonplace that everybody sees it and nobody (laughs) bats an eye. So I'm, I'm wondering, what are the, the common threads that you were mentioning and, and what stood out to you? Well, I mean, look, I, I think those are good points. I don't know. I, I mean, there's a kind of a depressing component to that observation, right, Rich? Which sure. is maybe we're just <laughs> getting used to graft. You know, we're yeah. used to the uh, incredible refrigerators full of chocolate ice cream during recessions and all the things that we've seen <laughs> from from the, uh, you know, the culture, the, the class of uh, Congress in D.C. right now. But, um, you know, I, I think that there, I think there's room for uh, kind of morally correct prosecutions of public integrity cases. I, I, you know, it's not that I would ever say that every politician should have free reign to just cash in, um, even if we're used to a pretty high level of, of kind of low level or, or low intent graft, I guess would be the way to put it. But this indictment, again, it's early. You know, we're looking at an indictment. It's kind of the most favorable way the prosecution can kind of put the story out. Um, I, I think there's several, as a, as a defense attorney, as a former prosecutor, I think there's several flashpoints that are going to be really interesting to see how they play out. And one of them touches a little bit on what you just said. They're going to have a hard time just dealing with the wealth, right? I mean, Congress people, senators shouldn't have half a million dollars in cash and gold doubloons laying around the house. So that's mm-hmm. a starting point that's going to be, you know, in every opening statement. And, you know, you notice even the indictment has photographs of the gold bars in the indictment. And it was like, I think we all would understand what a gold bar means without the photo. But prosecutors know this stuff is going to saddle the case in every press account from now until the end of time. Kind of like documents in Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, they, they take pictures that in some cases that are kind of presented that way by the agents, and it becomes gospel as kind of a symbol, symbol of the case for going forward. So expect gold bars to be the late night jokes for you know Menendez's case for the rest of the time. But it is a tough bit of evidence to overcome. It's a starting point that you know the defense has to really focus on. How do we explain all of this? The, the next thing 
and this is a lesson that you know nobody really takes to heart, although we all should. Texts and emails are always central anchors in these public corruption cases. And in this case, they allege Nadine, Menendez's wife, literally deleted a bunch that they still got from one of the co-defendants. So it's both the substance and the deletion that's going to come back to be a difficult challenge for the uh, defense. Jim Trusty, hang on right there. We're going to come right back, put a pin in this Menendez stuff. And then I want to talk a little Hunter Biden and some other headlines that are out there. Folks, we're on with Jim Trusty, former federal prosecutor and chief of the organized crime section at the DOJ. Don't go anywhere. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. All right, Familia, welcome back. We're on with uh, Jim Trusty, former chief of the organized crime section at the Department of Justice. He was a prosecutor for 28 years, and he's with the law firm of IFRA Law right now. Now, Jim Trusty, we were uh, we left off with the indictment. It's not just an indictment against the Menendez, but it's also a, an indictment against his wife. Tell us more. Yeah, well, that's going to be a real interesting division of kind of prosecutorial attention because Obviously, when you're talking about uh, Mr. Menendez, then it really is going to ripen into an issue of what exactly did he do for these New Jersey businessmen? And the allegations range from uh, helping the country of Egypt in terms of uh, military purchases from Menendez's perch at top of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to even obstructing uh, New Jersey state prosecutors, or at least attempting to. Uh, on behalf of one of these guys who was under investigation for criminal conduct in New Jersey. So there's a real direct focus on some of the bribery uh, consequences, bribery intended uh, consequences. But Nadine's in a little different spot. What is interesting is she is described in the indictment as having known one of the co-defendants for a long time before Robert. And these text messages between her and that co-defendant, as reported in the indictment, uh, seem pretty over the top in terms of, you know, we are uh, so thankful for all these things you've given us and Bob has delivered for you. I mean, a lot of what they call mm. tacit admissions seem to be in there. And again, Nadine apparently tried to uh, destroy all of her texts and emails or delete them, uh, but they were still recovered from a co-defendant. So it's kind of the worst of all worlds for her on that line. I believe she's represented by a guy named David Shurtler out of D.C. who's a talented 
defense attorney, longtime prosecutor in D.C. before that. So, again, I think it's going to be a real street fight when they get down to it in terms of whether Menendez did things that were truly outside of his lane as a politician uh, as a result of these bribes. And so that, you know, you think about Governor McDonald and some of the other cases that have uh, gone the wrong way on appeal on these types of issues. There'll be some interesting legal issues that brew out of it, particularly for the senator. And Nadine gets the benefit of being kind of a step removed as not being the politician. But she did seem to be, from the indictment, the intended recipient of a lot of things like a no-show, low-show job, uh, reimbursement, or I guess direct payment for $28,000 worth of mortgage she owed. You know, so they're definitely going to drag her into the case right next to him. It's going to be kind of interesting. The thing to watch really overall is not, you know, how does the press conference go today? It's what's happening with these other defendants. And I think there was a report that one of the other defendants is pending sentencing. I looked at the docket. There's nothing unsealed that talks about that. So there's a real good chance at least one of the co-defendants has already pled guilty as a cooperator. And that could be the icing on the cake when you talk about the wealth, you talk about the text messages, you talk about interventions at the uh, state attorney general's office where somebody from that office will testify. You can have somebody tell the whole story uh, if he's a cooperator. And if he's believed, it can be really devastating. You mentioned the case against um, Governor uh, McDonald. And the, 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 I find that interesting because it's my belief. And, and I think I've heard you comment on this. Um, you know, for years, I worked as a as an associate producer on the great one, Mark Levin's show, and you were on with with Mark, and uh, you you said some things about overall about the weaponization of of the DOJ and whatnot, and 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 I think the the prosecution into the governor was such a case, and that's why it was eventually overturned. Um, do you think that Menendez can pursue that route here and say they went after me because I'm a Democrat and they don't like me, or they went after me because I'm a political enemy, one way or another? Yeah, I mean, it's always a possibility. It really depends on the tolerance of the trial judge, you know, whether or not the judge views it as something that's truly a defense or really just some sort of political argument. And I think it's so it's, ultimately it's an open question of how much that comes into play. Uh, and a lot of times to really generate that, you'd have to take the stand. And that's a big question, you know, whether someone like Menendez can take the stand and satisfactorily explain things like the $486,000, like his wife's job. So, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out, but it's a fair question. I I think the point that I, I there's a lot of broad points about the weaponization of DOJ. Um, The party line here doesn't seem to be the direct issue, right? He's a Democrat being prosecuted by a Democratic administration. But there is room for him to complain in terms of pretrial motions, and then hopefully from his perspective, generate something at trial through cross-examination or testimony that suggests that this is a political persecution and not a uh, valid prosecution. Now, and, and that makes some sense. Uh, I'm just I'm wondering how it's going to play out, because it seems, it seems, again, like based on what you're telling me and based on what I see in, in the articles and the indictment, uh, that it's going to be um, tough for them to dig th- their way out of this, because there seems to be a lot of um, evidence, albeit perhaps circumstantial. They probably have more, and if they have a cooperating witness, then that may be uh, the ultimate thing. Do you think there's a, a chance Menendez walks away uh, again as, no, it wasn't me, it was my wife, and you know, can he do that? Uh, does she take the fall? Is, is, there, is there a situation like that that exists? Well, it's the death of chivalry, right? Uh, <laughs> right. There have been situations where, you know, politicians would, would probably throw, you know, anyone under the bus. 
Hey, look, it's early. I mean, I, I think that you you could end up having very antagonistic defenses, you know, surprisingly between a husband and a wife where the husband says, you know, this was all this kind of Egyptian espionage and Nadine knew those guys long before she knew me. So there is some room to try to make yourself out as the mark, you know, that you were the one that got targeted by corrupt people and never really knew exactly what was happening. It's just difficult when you're in a position as high as the as a chair of the, you know, foreign relations committee right. and when you've been, you know, in the Senate for so many years, you can't exactly pretend you're a babe in the woods. So, uh but yeah, it'd be interesting to see if it plays out that way. I mean, there's no guarantee that husband and wife are in lockstep for trial if they stay together at trial, which presumably they will. I mean, if there's a uh, a post-arrest statement made by an alien, which I doubt there is, that could be a, a basis for severance. But if they stay together at trial, uh, it will be interesting to see how united they are and if there's moments where you can smell a little bit of daylight in the approach taken by the attorneys. But you know, kind of way too early to predict that with any certainty. Yeah, uh, uh, interesting. It will, will be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, earlier this week, Politico reported that Hunter Biden's prosecutor worried about a lack of help from other federal prosecutors. And that's uh, a statement coming from an IRS official who was describing how jurisdictional friction complicated the decision of whether to charge the president's son with tax crimes. Now, this has been an interesting case all along, and and uh, I'm, I'm trying to observe it as objectively as I can. I'm not a fan uh, of Hunter Biden. To me, this whole thing looks like a scam. Uh, and they're just trying to figure out how to get out of it using their political cloud and connections and whatnot. Uh, but from where you stand, as uh, somebody who's you know been around the block twenty eight times, um, how does it, how does this smell to you? Uh, rotten. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to I'd love to dress it up and say you know this is the process and give it time and see how it works. But you know, there's a lot that's so extraordinarily unusual about how Hunter Biden's case is being treated that it really feeds in to the concern that a lot of us have, that we're suddenly in this moment of, of history where we have two different systems of justice. And, you know, and obviously I uh, have some inside experience from, from dealing with the investigation into President Trump, which maybe colors my perspective. But if you listen and you see some of the things that have happened, it feels like Delaware is the place where federal cases go to die. And, you know, <laughs> the IRS agents, for instance, you know, you mentioned these guys, Rich, the IRS agents, they're not usually the first ones to like break ranks and go public and talk about how there's something wrong here. I can tell you from doing tax cases over the years as a prosecutor, you know, basically if they invest in a case, if they say we're going to work this case with you for tax evasion, for failure to pay, whatever, they, they want a felony count. They want to see right. as kind of the sweat equity reward that there are felony charges that it's taken seriously. And I can tell you, I never saw a tax case that went away with misdemeanors. So your starting point is how in the world does a Delaware prosecutor spend years dawdling over an agreement to give misdemeanors? It obviously inflamed the IRS, I think, quite properly. The gun mm -hmm. count is another just singular moment in the history of gun prosecutions. When I was a Maryland federal prosecutor, uh, I spent about five or six years running the gun program for Southern Maryland, Prince George's, Montgomery, some other counties, uh, the Project Exile, as we called it back then. I can tell you for all the dozens or maybe hundreds of cases that crossed my desk, there was never an issue about the statute of limitations. We never got to a point like, oh, my gosh, it's been five years. <laughs> right. We better do something. And so the, the inertia is amazing just on its face. 
But we also never, and I've never, I don't think I'd have the temerity to even ask for this usually as a defense attorney. I will now. We never had a deferred prosecution agreement where you got a freebie basically out of the gun count. And so the combination of what smelled rotten to a Delaware judge, frankly, of unbelievably lenient treatment for tax offenses and for gun charges, I mean, all of that was kind of historically unique. But I think the broader concern, and then I'll get off my soapbox, Rich, the broader concern is just that, you know, the whole concept of Hunter Biden being prosecuted is an effort to silo a family's criminal enterprise and put it all on one poor little drug addicted guy who just needs a taste of misdemeanors. And, you know, I, I think if you look at what's happened out of the uh, out of Comer's committee, developing really powerful facts about suspicious activities and shell corporations and testimony about the big guy, you know, there's enough there where real prosecutors wouldn't be diddling around with these misdemeanors and tax cases, nor would they be limiting it to Hunter Biden alone. So I think everything, every sign we see out of Delaware on Hunter Biden is a sign that we have a new politicized and weaponized system of justice that that really people on both sides of the aisle shouldn't be accepting at all, although it's turning out that, you know, half the country seems okay with it. Wow. That's what I, what I suspected and feared. And uh, it's, it stinks to hear that from somebody, you know, who was chief of the organized crime section at the DOJ folks we're on with uh, Jim trustee, uh, former chief of the organized crime section at the DOJ prosecutor for 28 years. And uh, we're going to continue to pull on that thread with Hunter Biden and how it may relate to the rest of the Biden administration and compare it to some of the other cases in the news straight ahead. If you want to join the conversation, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. That's 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, amigos, welcome back. We're on with Jim Trustees, the former chief of the organized crime section at the Department of Justice for 28 years. He was a prosecutor, and uh, he also worked on President Trump's case. And Jim Trustee, I want to ask you, we were just talking about this thing and you said it smells rotten. And I agree. I mean, and I'm not you, right? I'm not 28 year prosecutor. I'm a radio guy. But it, it seems like it stinks to me. And and my thinking is, um, I would say boldly, any prosecutor worth his salt would definitely go after this. And you shake the trees and you see what falls out. If you've got a dirty Hunter Biden and he happens to be the first son or he was the, the son of the vice president. There could be a pattern here that we have to look at, which Comer is doing, but the Department of Justice isn't quite doing. And you've alluded to the fact that they're just they're somehow insulating the rest of the Biden crime family from what the whatever malfeasance they may potentially be doing. Um, I agree. I think that's that's not good. But does that happen forever? Is there a point in which uh, we actually see justice? That's a great question, and I'd love to say I have an answer, but I don't know that I do. I mean, you know, what what I think is lost on a lot of folks out there, and again, they don't, you know, most people don't have the benefit of kind of knowing the bureaucracy 
of DOJ and how cases get developed. But what's really lost on a lot of this country right now are the fingerprints of the current attorney general. You know, the special counsel rule, for instance, the special counsel statute is very different than the old independent counsel statute. All roads still go right up to Merrick Garland to make the, the, the critical decisions when it comes to Donald Trump, for instance. He is still the person, whether you call him a special counsel or for the four years where Weiss was not a special counsel, he is still the boss of the U.S. attorney in Delaware. That's true right this second. And when you have an attorney general go in front of Congress and have these hearings where you know, he can't remember if he ever talked about the investigation of Hunter Biden with the FBI, and Crazy. he continuously says that's Jack Smith or that's David Weiss or that's you know, uh, New York prosecutors and, and, you know, local and federal, the distancing from the decision-making is to me, the great aggravator of the situation. If we're going to hope that justice is even handed and that there's accountability, it starts with transparency and we don't get that with the, with this department at all. And I, I served under a good number of different attorney generals. I was trying to count them up the other day and I think I'm too old, but it was probably like six or something. And of all different political stripes, I mean, Eric Holder, Loretta Lynch, uh, Ashcroft, uh, Janet Reno, I was there for a lot of that stuff. And you see different flavorings of how they conduct themselves, the legislation they care about, the policies that they want to focus on. But you didn't see something as striking as we see now, which is literally a refusal to take responsibility for being the attorney general pretending that there's independence because other people are the face of the prosecutions when he is still the ultimate decision maker. And and so that's, you know, what really concerns me in terms of the, the negative feeling about answering your question is that if we don't have people of the highest character and the highest positions of justice, then we can't expect much. Very, very sad. Now, Jim Trusty, uh, let everybody know how they can uh, keep up to speed with everything you're working on and uh, how they could follow you. <laughs> well, I'm on that thing they call X. I guess it used <laughs> to be Twitter as uh, as trusty lawyer. Somebody gave me that moniker and it stuck pretty well. Uh, and if for law, our, our particular law firm will publish uh, maybe one or two blogs a month that I would write. Uh, some of them are, are kind of wonky and uh, about specific cases and some of them are a little bit broader. What, what I try to do, frankly, Rich, and, and hopefully I'm not uh, breaking my own rules tonight too much, you know, I, I really try not to be the political guy. I try to be the person that talks about process and right. procedure and, and what that tells you and what you can read between the lines from criminal investigations I've been living with for 30-something years uh, instead of getting in kind of the political pie fight. So, you know, when I go on TV or if I do radio, that's that's what I'm trying to do is explain things that I know from my experience and draw observations that are evidence-driven, not just kind of uh, pre-existing politics. And again, hopefully I'm doing okay with that, but that's, that's the mentality I try to bring, whether I'm on, you know, Fox or CNN or Rich Valdez or wherever I end up. Well, and that was totally my goal. I, I'm happy to lob political bombs all day long. It's what I do. Uh, but I want somebody who knows the game like you do uh, with decades of experience that can really read between the lines and, and has been there on the front lines to say, all right, this is not how this works. So this is, in my experience, this is what I saw. And I think you did an excellent job and you're always welcome to come back. As long as you're willing to stay up late, I'm happy to have you. Yeah, I got, I got nothing going on, man. I'm happy to stay up late with you. <laughs> so oh, thank you, brother. it's all good. I was watching a very frustrating Baltimore Orioles game. This was a good break. So uh, thanks for having <laughs> me on.
It's my pleasure. Thank you, everybody. That's Jim Trusty, former chief of the organized crime section at the DOJ, and he's with the IFRA law firm now. Jim Trusty, you're a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot, and I really appreciate you. All right. Thanks so much. Have a good one. You bet. All right, folks, there is more to come straight ahead. We continue with your calls and more. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, to the phones we go. Let's go to Robert, Charleston, South Carolina, WTMA. Robert, very quickly. Yes, Rich, I just wanted to say that, you know, my, my family, both the Jewish side and the Christian side, were of the opinion that the greatest danger with regard to organized crime is having organized crime within the government. They say that organized crime outside of the government that has to operate as a business is always at the mercy of the government, and therefore the government is always the greater threat. And I just wanted to, that was my point. That's what I. That's an excellent point, Robert. And, you know, something that, uh, in, in years past, I've heard uh, Dinesh D'Souza talk about government gangsterism, and even uh, Cash Patel right now has a book called Government Gangsters. And I think you're right that the, the mafia right now, uh, small m, is, is in Washington, D.C. And they probably have been there for a long time, but they're bolder now than they've ever been because they're being threatened like they've never been threatened before. They're being exposed like they've never been exposed before. And uh, quite frankly, many of us thought, you know, political corruption, this and that. I think you're right on target. It's organized crime within the federal government and, quite frankly, local and state governments as well. And we, the people, have to be the arbiter of goodwill here and put an end to it. Robert, thanks for your call. Straight ahead, we're going to talk about Merrick Garland. Uh, Jim Trusty just said we have to look at his fingerprints. We're going to do just that. Stick with me. We're coming right back. Another amazing hour is happening right now. Are you into weird, spooky, and strange history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We tell the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, unsolved mysteries, the paranormal, and then we look to history to see where the truth actually lies. Want to get spooky with us? Horrifying History, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. America starts the day with America in the morning. Pending home sales numbers, they tanked in April, but there are. Hi, I'm John Trout, your host for the latest news, politics, entertainment, business, and weather. Octane action in the dust, a new film puts. Our staff of correspondents provide a fast paced look at the world with specialized reports from where news happens. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Amazon. Concise, accurate, and fresh each day. America in the morning, the podcast, available wherever you listen. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. 
And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. Happy to be with you on Friday night. 833-482-5337 is our phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ. And Speaker McCarthy has made some incendiary statements yesterday, as we heard from uh, Congressman Matt Rosendale on the the additional Ukraine funds that were part of the Pentagon bill. And there were these five holdouts that, you know, some were saying uh, the New York Times labeled them as Republican rebels. Uh, we had Matt Rosendale on. He explained his case. I thought it was a, a very fair case and uh, the differences they had with with Speaker McCarthy. And McCarthy uh, later in the day made some statements again, like I said, that were incendiary. And I want you to hear what he said. Frustrating in the sense that I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing the idea and having the debate. And then you got all the amendments if you don't like the bill. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. It, it doesn't work. So McCarthy says they want to burn the whole place down. And uh, then he pulls a page out of Biden's uh, whisper. It doesn't work. <laughs> and I like McCarthy. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. And of course, they they continued and they had, as Matt Rosendale told us yesterday, live on the air, that they were having these conversations to get to a better place. And that it wasn't, uh, you know, them trying to burn the place down or be rebels, but they were trying to stop the spending that we, you know, we can't have President Zelensky in town while we're trying to prevent a government shutdown. We're trying to figure out how we're going to pay our own bills. We're borrowing $2 trillion just to pay the interest on the money that's being borrowed. And we've got Zelensky here saying, hey, by the way, you got a couple more billion for me? Because, you know, it's about lives. And lives, you know, you can never compare them to dollars, especially when those dollars are the dollars that you and I are paying in taxes. So that uh, left a, a foul taste in my mouth for sure. Uh, and I again, I'm rooting for Ukraine. I want to see this thing done. I want to see Putin in his corner and Zelensky in his, and let's all continue life happy. But all that being said, McCarthy went back to the drawing board, continued negotiations with these five holdouts and a few others. Listen to this. I thought we had a really good conference the night before. I thought we had moved two people, but we moved two people the other way too. So it's a, it's a yin and a yang. It's a yin and a yang. Well, McCarthy has now uh, today decided to strip the Ukraine money from the Pentagon bill after the no vote. And I think that's a step in the right direction. Speaker McCarthy, this is according to The Hill, announced uh, today that he's going to strip the funding for Ukraine out of the Pentagon spending bill after uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene joined the conservatives in blocking the legislation from advancing earlier this week. McCarthy said he would remove the $300 million for Ukraine currently in the Pentagon appropriations bill and hold a separate vote on the funding. I think that's fair. And that's what they were saying. At least Matt Rosendale, who's one of those five, he was saying uh, we have to have single issue legislation. We can't just keep lumping things in. And this was part of their original, uh, if you want to be speaker, this is what we want. So, and again, uh, I like McCarthy. I think he's the guy. He's the guy that, that was, you know, best positioned to do this. So it really is a give and take. And in my opinion, this is our government working. Right. This is government in action. Uh, it's kind of like being married or having a girlfriend. You know, it's not always it's not always roses. Right. It's sometimes there's uh, intense fellowship, if you will. You know, sometimes you have a little bit of arguing that has to happen, some discussion, which is, in my opinion, healthy communication. So uh, I'm glad to see that this happened, that they, they took the money out. 
because I think that's how it should be. Let's talk about each issue as it arises. Funding the Pentagon, um, I could see how they could make the correlation that, yes, of course, we're going to be funding the Pentagon. We have to include this money because we're going to be giving the money you know, from the Department of Defense and in the form of aid. However, it really is a separate issue because that money isn't even going to us, right? That's straight up uh, an appropriation that's not even designed for the United States. And and I think it's it's time. We've spent more money here than we've spent in a lot of other places. And I think it's time we take a look, have an accounting, kind of revisit where we're at. Uh, how are we helping them? What help is all of this money providing? I don't know. I don't I, I don't see much uh, much headway being made on the side of the uh, Ukrainians. So we have to ask ourselves, what is going on anyway? So that's part of that. Now, there's another clip I want to pray, uh, play for you very quickly, and it's uh, from Miguel Cardona. Now, Miguel Cardona, he is um, the Secretary of Education, and today he said that he doesn't have too much respect for parents that are misbehaving in public and acting like they know what's right for kids. <laughs> how, how? Anyway, you listen, then we'll talk. There was civility. We could disagree. We could have healthy conversations um, around what's best for kids. I respect differences of opinion. I don't have too much respect for people that are misbehaving in public and then acting as if they know what's right for kids. Now, you know, my dad, my dad would hear a statement like this and say, pero quien puñetares tú? And I hope there's no FCC translators that speak Spanish because I might get in trouble for that one. But who the heck are you? Who the heck are you? Uh, ultimately, right, the, the children are the parents' children. Now, of course, you're you're an uh, education administrator, but uh, and maybe it's my upbringing, maybe it's my my ethnicity, whatever it is. But I, I I don't need to have too many healthy conversations with anybody when it comes to my kids. I'll have it, sure. If you're a teacher and you say, you know, I really think you know this might be good for your kid, we can have that conversation. But Cardona is infamous for implementing things without without a shred of checking with anybody and, and parents balking at these ideas. So if, if you're in a position of authority and parents are saying you're out of your mind, shouldn't you stop and, and say, hold on, hold on, let's have a, let's, let's talk about this. Instead of saying, well, no, no, we're going to do this irrespective of how you feel, but we can have a conversation about it. And I say that because when I worked in government, that was, we were taught these, these slogans, right? They said, when you get pushback, you just tell them, oh, we can definitely have a conversation about that. That was it. That was code for there's no discussion here. We're going to do it. But it, it, it softens your, your adversary in this conversation to think, oh, OK, good. They're going to try to appease me. It's political doublespeak. And he's, he's notorious for it. He constantly does these crazy things. So to say that, you know, he respects a difference of opinion. Sure. Don't we all? But he doesn't have too much respect for parents that are misbehaving in public. Now, who who is the determiner, if you will, of who is misbehaving? What does misbehaving mean? Does that mean coming as an irate parent to a school board meeting and speaking out or citing the words that are in a book that sound like pornography and then having your mic shut off or some board member telling you, I'm sorry, but you're not allowed to say that in this meeting, but your kids are allowed to read it at the library or your kids are allowed to read it in whatever grade. This is a clear double standard. And it's one of those where we have to hold the line on this stuff as parents, as, as people, right? You know, the same way, in my opinion, the same way that 
everybody pays school taxes because it's the benefit of everybody that we have an educated, you know, youth and and future for our country, that we all have to have a, a stake in fighting for kids. If you're driving your car and you've, you're a single guy who's never had kids or a woman who's never had children and you see somebody mistreating a kid, isn't it incumbent upon you to be like, hey, is everything all right? Or do you just mind your own business and pretend, no, no, that's that kid. That, that, that's that kid's problem. That's that parent's problem. I can tell you, you can do that if you see two grown men fighting and it's a fair fight. But if you turn your back on a kid, well, I'll use a line from Miguel Cardona and say, I don't have too much respect for people like that. More to come straight ahead. We're going to talk about Merrick Garland uh, and a bunch of other things that I want to jump into with uh, the editor from The Federalist. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. This is America. This is night. This is Rich Valdez. All right, Familia, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. And we were just on with uh, Jim Trusty, And something he said in that interview really, really resonated with me. And he said, something that's lost on a lot of people is the fingerprints of Merrick Garland. And saying that he's getting a pass by the media and that it's not showing how everything kind of really leads back to him. And that there really isn't this division of labor as he's making it seem when he's making these comments under oath, which may be perjury, according to some congressmen. And when we're talking about the attorney general of the United States and his either incompetence, which you may think what you want of Merrick Garland, but incompetent is not one of the things I would label him as. Shady, slimy, fake, phony fraud, yes. But incompetent, not so much. But when he says things like, well, listen to this. Have you had personal contact with anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation? Uh, don't re- I, don't, I don't recollect the answer to that question, but the FBI works for the Justice Department. It's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You don't, recollect, you don't recollect whether you've talked with anybody at FBI headquarters about an investigation of the president's son? I, I don't believe that I did. I promised the Senate when I came um, before it for confirmation that I would leave Mr. Weiss in place and that I would not interfere with his investigation. Okay, did you ever? I have kept that promise. All right. Okay. I don't recollect. Uh, I don't believe I have. Listen, this is not somebody that is incompetent. He's not stupid. He's a liar. At least that's my opinion and not so humble opinion, if I can add that. Now, I want to get to the bottom of this. And the editor at The Federalist, Samuel Mangold Lennett, is with us to help break it down. Samuel Mangold Lennett, welcome to the program. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Oh, it's going great, brother. 
uh, you know, I'm used to being wired at night, uh, drinking coffee and, 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 you know, all sorts of caffeinated beverages. So I'm yeah. rip roaring, ready to go. And, uh, I, I love talking about this stuff. So I appreciate you coming in now. Let's, let's get to the bottom of this because, um, I mean, there's a lot that happened this week with these hearings. Uh, what's your take? Um, well, I agree exactly with, uh, with you exactly. I think Merrick Garland knows, um, exactly what he's doing. I think any, anybody who believes that he is, um, well, I think he wants people to believe he's incompetent at best. I think he's leading people on. Um, it's clearly just a ruse. Uh, you know, previously when Bill Barr was attorney general, he could confirm that certain specific things were being communicated to the president without like detailing anything whatsoever. Right. He could say, yes, I briefed the president on X, Y, Z. And to that point, anybody who doesn't believe that the attorney general is discussing the president's son who's being brought up on federal charges to the president. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe they're discussing that, that's just asinine. Of course they're discussing that. That's just, why wouldn't they discuss that? They have to discuss that. That's just basic human. Like if you have a brain, if you have a single brain cell, you're going to, you're going to know they're discussing that. Yeah. I mean, also let's just say he didn't want to talk about uh, the the president uh, with the president or even with the FBI. I think he could have easily said, I didn't want to get involved in this investigation, so I didn't talk to anybody at the FBI. He could have said it one way or the other. He didn't have to sound like a bumbling idiot, but he did. And and uh, it, it, to me, it undermines the confidence that people have in, in the Department of Justice. It undermines the confidence that people should have in the attorney general of the United States. Uh, these are these are bridges that are far, too far to cross. And and I don't know that Americans are buying it. If anybody believed that, partisan or not, um, they need to have their heads examined, in my opinion, because it, it, it just it smacks of of falsity, in my opinion. Now, what are some of the other major takeaways you took from the hearings this week? Yeah, um, so I think so the two things that really stand out to me, well, I guess three um, during his opening statement, uh, he was Merrick Garland was talking about um, various things the DOJ is doing that he is proud of. One of the things he listed was um, protecting American civil rights. And when he was listing the various civil rights, various things they're doing to protect civil rights, he mentioned protecting reproductive rights. And by that, he, of course, means abortion and expanding access to abortion. And that really took me aback for a second because, of course, we know the left is very rabid about expanding abortion access. Um, But I've never really heard it as a aspect of civil rights before. Um, so that, that startled me. It was, um, there's this growing notion, um, which I think is, um, correct that the left will use, um, ever expanding interpretations of civil rights law to advance their agenda. And we kind of see this with uh, the LGBT, LGBT stuff. Um, and as a consequence of, uh, justice Gorsuch's Gorsuch's ruling in Bostock, of how certain um, identities are now, um, I think of the trans stuff, that's an ad- right. a consequence of this. But I, I, I never thought of, um, and I don't think most people have thought of, of mm-hmm. um, a board of status as a civil rights protected class. Um, right. So it's, it was just, that took me, uh, I was taken aback by that. Um, but I think, the biggest takeaway was the um, David Weiss 
the um, I'm blanking on his status at the moment. He's the, the uh, U.S. Attorney for Delaware, yeah, and now thank Special you. Counsel. Yes, um, but whether or not he had his the authority he had on char- to charge Hunter Biden, right? Um, Lies. Right, exactly, and arguably, I don't not even arguably. I think there's a good case that Merrick Garland perjured himself. Um, you know, we know through IRS whistleblowers and through Weiss and Garland himself that there was a lot of back and forth on this thing. Um, but Weiss previously said, previously said that he did have full authority. Garland previously said he had full authority. The whistleblowers have said that he did not. And just on Wednesday, Garland said he did not. So, you know, what's going on there? Clearly, something is amiss. There's clearly a miscommunication, purposeful or accidental. But I err on the side that this is a manipulation of um, reality. Um, there ergo a lie, but yeah. I think I think that's um, I think that's the biggest takeaway here is that we are getting closer and closer to finding out that uh, explicitly finding out. I mean, we can already kind of deduce what's happening, but explicitly finding out that this is this more institutional corruption to benefit the Bidens. It seems that way, and, and something you pointed out, I think, really stood out for me um, because it, it's really. Um, a really apt point, and it's that everything under the sun is all of a sudden a civil right. Whatever they want, right? <laughs> whatever, they, whatever they want, it's, it's a civil right. And uh, you've got a piece um, on civil rights, uh, or you're saying the civil rights regime is now saying that, you know, we can punish fake murders, but we won't punish real murders, and they're not worth mentioning. And I think that's a really apt point because we're not only seeing that at the federal level, and and part of the national uh, civil dif- discourse, if you will, but more so in small cities and large cities across America where we're just not prosecuting crime. It's almost like these prosecutors are pro-crime progressives that are just aiding and abetting massive crimes. I want to talk about that and, and your piece specifically, so stick with us. Folks, we're on with Samuel Mangold Lennett. He is the staff editor at The Federalist. Check out their page, thefederalist.com. We're coming right back with him, plus your calls. If you want to weigh in and have a conversation with us, you're welcome. 833-482-5337, 833-4VALDEZ. Don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. radio star, by the way. Richie Valdez is terrific. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, amigos, welcome back. Uh, We're on with Sam Mangold Lennett. He's a staff editor at The Federalist, and he's got a piece. uh, Under our civil rights regime, fake murders are punished and real murders aren't worth mentioning. Sam, welcome back. I, I want to talk about this piece because I think this is, um, while your, your overarching theme is, is spot on, uh, this is something we see every day in so many parts of the country. Tell us a little bit about the piece. Yeah, so 
what sparked it was a video that went viral on Twitter or um, uh, X, as it's now called, yeah. of a of two teenagers um, taking a joyride in what was reported to be a stolen car and recording one, the passenger in the front seat is recording it and is they're creeping up on a cyclist and the passenger is encouraging the driver to mow down the cyclist and the driver subsequently does. And crazy story, by the way, we we spoke about this last night with a cop and uh, it's, it's a heartbreaking story. And not to interrupt you, I just wanted to say it, it, okay. this is jarring. I brought it up today in natural conversation um, with a girl that I'm dating. And it, she was like, I don't want to talk about it because it's such a uh, a horrible video. Go right ahead. Yeah. No, it is it is absolutely horrifying. And it's the fact that they're the, the two young men in the video just this is just what they're doing for fun. This is just a casual activity for them. It's, there's no there's no higher, you know, thought to it. It's just kind of like two buddies tossing a baseball back and forth. It's just shenanigans. There's no, you want to go for a burger? Yeah, let's go for a burger. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's literally that flippant. Uh, utterly horrifying. It's just the, the banality of evil, I suppose. But, um, that, that is, that, that was the, um, the catalyst for this piece. But the, the, the um, the deceased officer, well, the driver's name is, um, Jesus Ayala, I probably did not pronounce that correctly. Uh, he's 17 year, was 17 years old at mm-hmm. the time of the incident, is now 18. And the passenger is uh, Jasmine Keys. He is 16 years old. Um, and Andreas Prost um, is the name of the 64-year-old retired police officer, or police chief, rather, yeah. who was murdered. And you will, the media, the corporate media the corporations, academia, celebrities are not going to demand that we know this man's name. Unfortunately, aside from this conversation, the conversation you had with the um, woman you are dating and a couple other conversations like these, he will probably be forgotten except for his family. Lamentably. Shortly hereafter. Um, Whereas in the summer of 2020, the death of George Floyd utterly changed the face of our country. It utterly changed American culture and irreversibly so. Um, And there's something that really ought to be said about that. The fact that the death of George Floyd, there's still a lot of mischaracterization in the popular narrative surrounding it. Um, There's still a lot of confusion surrounding it as well. Um, But this was a murder that was done gleefully for recreation and nobody is going to um, demand aside from, you know, now that they have been arrested, um, there, there is going to be no cultural, um, you know, national conversation, if you will, as there was and serious uh, rioting as there was for George Floyd. Um, right. So, what I wanted to highlight was the fact that um, the civil rights regime being the ever-expanding use of um, civil rights civil rights legislation and disparate impact laws and how they've 
impacted our culture through a sort of trickle-down effect, if you will, um, how it in, how it creates new forms of cultural and legal, legal hierarchies by doing away with past ones. And of course, um, you know, the point of America is that we're a more perfect union. We're trying to constantly live up to the ideals enshrined by our founding. Um, so the whole point of civil rights, civil rights legislation was to expand the ideals of those founding of the founding to Americans who previously were not able to enjoy the fruits of the founding. Um, and that's a noble pursuit that I think most people, basically everybody in the country can get behind. But inherently, when you get rid of old hierarchies, you're creating new ones. And there were not guide rails to ensure that everybody was, was on equitable footing, like actual fair footing. Instead, And instead of creating an equal playing field, we just inverted hierarchies and we're seeing the consequences of that playing out. It's so sad. And, you know, I think you sum it up really well in uh, in the subtitle of your piece. Uh, America is a land of hierarchy. It's why corporate media won't talk about the teenager who ran over a retired police chief for fun. And 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 in your comments, you talked about, you know, the the evil nature of this. Uh, it, it's really shocking to me, A, what they did and B, the response that we get. And I think this is why. People have a low opinion of Congress. People have a very low opinion of the media. And I think rightfully so. People ultimately aren't stupid. I don't care what you do for a living. I think everybody should be respected. And and I feel like these institutions, um, both, you know, our government and our media are, are not living up to the expectation that the people have, which is to be a straight shooter. Just tell the truth. And people are losing respect for these institutions because of this because you'll have this crazy video. And I think this is a very um, appropriate juxtaposition that you make to this and George Floyd. You know, I, I've never defended George Floyd for what he did, um, you know, previously, but I never faulted him either in this case, right? The fact that there were stories that he'd uh, held a, a pregnant woman at gunpoint and he was, um, you know, all sorts of career criminal activity. All of that really, in my opinion, didn't matter in that moment where he was in that situation with the cop, right? So I, I believe that we, we, we there was anger and outrage over what happened to George Floyd, and it was it was justifiable in so much as you had this heavy-handed cop. And it was then lost on the media and everyone else saying, but, you know, he had fentanyl in his system. And nobody wanted to talk about that fact. And, and I get it. It may or may not have changed uh, the situation Either way, this guy was on his neck forever, and we have what we have. But in this situation, there's no altercation. There's no anything. It's just a guy riding his bike and two kids that want to kill him or hurt him, not knowing they would kill him, but they left him for dead. And it, exactly. it's, it's insane. And the fact that we're not talking about this, and in my opinion, we should have headlines for a week talking about what's going on with America's kids. Are America's kids lost? The story behind, you know, treat these kids like school shooters. You know, why are they so crazy? Why are they so evil? What is going on? And we never do that. I, I, and you're pointing out why, and I think you do it really well in this piece. But it, it's it's horrifying, in my opinion. It really, really is. Folks, we're on with Sam Mangold Lennett. I hope I said that right. 
<laughs> and yep. he is uh, the staff editor at The Federalist. And I want to continue our conversation with him straight ahead. Uh, he's got a number of really good pieces that I want to go through. I hope we have time for all of them. Uh, the next one I want to tackle is uh, this report that the FBI illegally politicized background investigations for Republican presidential nominees. And again, it's 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 one one extreme to the next, right? We have this corrupt, uh, in large part, media, not the Federalist. You guys are out there telling the truth. Uh, but now we have the FBI that's supposed to uh, stand up for what's right and true and legal and, again, failing the people. So I want to get your thoughts on that and walk through that piece as well. And we're going to do that straight ahead, plus your phone calls. Uh, I see we've got some calls on the line, so we're going to go to those as, as we come back. 833-482-5337. 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And we're on with Samuel Mangold Lennett, staff editor at The Federalist. Check them out at Federalist.com. And there's a piece that he's written. Uh, report the FBI illegally politicized background investigations for Republican presidential nominees. And I'm wondering, why didn't they illegally politicized background investigations for RFK Jr. or any of the others that are, you know, thinking of going into that race. I don't know, but he's going to explain. Sam Mangold, Lennett, go right ahead. Yeah, so at the end of the day, it's really just the fact that the deep state wants to sabotage Republicans. Um, they did it to Trump because he was the Republican president. But they would have done it to Jeb if he beat Hillary instead. They would have done it to Marco Rubio, to Scott Walker, et cetera. Um, they, mm-hmm. I make this point in the piece, but if, if an individual, if, if an administration poses a threat to permanent Washington, to the deep state, to the uniparty, to whatever term we want to prescribe to it, if that individual's, if that individual's administration poses a threat to its existence or to its agenda – It'll pull out every tool in its in its toolbox to sabotage them. Um, that's why it gave Trump so much trouble throughout his term in office, and we saw that really we saw it manifest in any number of ways. But this background check um, uh, example, I think, really manifests in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, because the the rigmarole they put him through during the confirmation process is an aspect of this all the all of the um just the scrutiny he was opened up to in the uh, in the pub uh, the in the court of public opinion is because uh well not because of this prim- uh, entirely but a big part of it is because the um the third party information that um leaked was 
because of initial uh, investigations that were opened up through unnecessary um, protocol because the FBI and the DOJ did not follow their own um, standards of conduct. They did not follow proper, um, they did not follow the statutes and how to conduct investigations in the first place. And they just created extra layers of bureaucracy improperly to begin with and just muddled, muddied the waters. So it just created the whole rigmarole that just made everything untenable. You know, I look at that and I think it's crazy. Um, and just to, to dissect that for a second, this has likely always existed, maybe not to the degree that we see today, but it has. And we're seeing it at this degree because I think they've ratcheted up the uh, the effort on their level because I'm going to say mainly Trump. I think Trump really called them out over and over and over. And, you know, the term the deep state was around, but it's become very popular. You know, people, even if you don't believe in one, even if you don't like it, even if you use it to criticize people like you or me or anybody else, it's there and it's part of uh, the, the discourse. And I think that's important. It's important that we realize that there is a what you called permanent Washington. I think that's a fascinating term because it's, it's so accurate and it shouldn't be permanent. Right? No, it, it, we shouldn't have this establishment of people that can literally dictate everything that goes on. And it became real for me in my life. I worked in the uh, Christie administration in New Jersey when he was governor, and I saw it there. Uh, people thought I was a regular government employee and I was a political appointee. And when they found out that the governor had appointed me, all of a sudden people started treating me differently and they made life hell for me. And I, and I saw that firsthand in my life and I thought, who am I? Nobody even knows who I am. They didn't care. But it was just true that there were these permanent people in government that will use whatever power they have and weaponize that against you just to soften you, just to soften whoever you're aligned with or affiliated with and to to derail their agenda, slow that agenda, curtail that agenda. And as I saw that, I said, oh, my gosh, you know, when you start hearing these stories about Trump and he starts saying, oh, they spied on me. And I, I, I didn't doubt it for a second because I realized that's a very real thing. And the fact that we, you know, that whole thing dominated headlines for as long as it did the Russia gate and then everything else just amazes me that we, we didn't have uh, more conversation about how the government's doing that. And again, I bring it back to the first point that you made. It's the media. The media is turning a blind eye. Folks, we're on with Samuel Mangold Lennett, staff editor at the Federalist, Federalist.com. We're coming right back. Your calls and more don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. With Rich Valdez. 
All right, to the phones we go. Let's go to Ken in Lansing, Michigan. He's on WILS. Ken, you're on with Sam Mangold Leonard from The Federalist and me, Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. We've got about 25 or 30 seconds for you. Good evening, Rich. Show is always great. Uh, I Thank believe you. the main problem in this country and our society is over 50% of the homes that have children 18 and younger do not have a father in that home. Which is someone you don't have to answer, you don't don't have to answer to anyone. You do whatever the hell you want. These kids today, they're just uh, they have no discipline. They're not taught manners and morals. And I think you're right. It's beyond ridiculous. You're so right, Ken. Thank you for the call. Big shout out to Lansing, Michigan, WILS. Sam Mangold, Lennon. Uh, in the minute or two we have remaining, what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I tend to agree. I think the decay of the nuclear family is one of the biggest issues facing Western civilization. I mean, it's it's one of the biggest building blocks of our society. And I think I think he's absolutely right. The fact that so many kids are grown up growing up in broken households, I think it's undeniable, undeniable that that is having horrible consequences. We see time and time again that kids who are raised in stable two family households tend to have the best success rates in life in every metric. You know, this wasn't the talk of the town back before FDR changed the way welfare worked. And it created this epidemic of fatherless homes by way of legislation in an un- maybe an unintended consequence, perhaps an intended one. That's up for debate. But the reality is, I think you're both right, that uh, uh, when you don't have any accountability, and, and it's not to say that moms can't hold their kids accountable. There's a, a million amazing single moms out there doing the job of mom and dad. But it doesn't replace uh, the nuclear family. It doesn't replace a two-parent home. And I think that's spot on. And everything you pointed out in your pieces, Sam, uh, the, the fact that the, the media and corporations and, and the um, incestuous relationship between the two uh, have really just turned a blind eye on things that are really affecting society writ large, and society's paying the price for it. Sam Mangold Lennett, staff editor at The Federalist. Let everybody know how they could follow you and keep up to speed with the work you're doing. Yeah, well, uh, you know, first and foremost, thanks so much for having me. It's been a great time. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at S-M-L-E-N-E-P-T. And be sure to read The Federalist at thefederalist.com. Outstanding, sir. You're a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot. I thank you for being with us. Thanks for staying up late. Folks, Open Phone America starts right now. Get your calls in now so we can have a robust Open phones across America. I'm Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. Don't go anywhere. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. (laughs) 
Hi there. Good evening. And what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. Happy to be here with you this Friday evening. If you want to join our late-night national town hall conversation, feel free. The number is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And lots to talk about tonight. We've discussed uh, the indictment into Senator Bob Menendez. We had a former Trump lawyer, former chief of the organized crime unit at the Department of Justice, Jim Trusty, uh, on the first hour. And it was an amazing interview. He shed a lot of light and helped us read between the lines on what's going on in this indictment. And it was a really good interview. If you heard it, great. If you didn't, check it out on our website, richvaldezamericaatnight.com. And you can also stream the show right from there, from anywhere, on demand. You could even listen to old shows. And if you want, you could even sign up for the podcast, which is absolutely free. And you'll get notifications when new episodes come out, and they post every single day. Now, uh, in addition to that, there's a couple of interesting stories. I hope we have time to get through them all, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. The uh, ex-FBI agent who was caught pocketing payments from a Russian oligarch, he was you know, uh, indicted recently, uh, Charles McGonagall, he uh, pled guilty today to um, this bribery. And we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but I think it's just fascinating when people say, oh, that's not happening. You know, it's happening. This guy was an FBI agent and he was getting paid by the Russians. You know, earlier I mentioned that there are people, the Russians pay people off to do everything. So when you see this crazy content on TikTok, it could be the Russians, it could be the Chinese, it could be the Iranians. These people are all in the same game of spreading propaganda and misinformation, disinformation, through our social media to divide and conquer the United States. That's just a fact. And it happens more often than we think, sometimes with the help of FBI agents. So we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, then there's a new CDC report, the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, they've released a report showing that obesity rates are rising. Go figure. This stuff is killing Americans left and right. I was once um, 269 pounds. Today, I think I'm at 202. And a long, long road. It took me six years to get down to this weight. Uh, had to change the way I eat. Uh, now I actually go to the gym. I work out a little bit. Uh, three days a week, I'm trying to up that to four. But my point is, this stuff will kill you, and nobody's telling you about it. We did a really good interview a few months ago with somebody who said that uh, the CDC or the uh, FDA or one of those that control the, the food pyramid, that they introduced a lot of things, even the... Um, American Diabetes, I think, Association was recommending an extremely high-carb breakfast as part of their healthy breakfast for diabetics that was chock-filled with carbs that would eventually raise your blood sugar. And it begged the question, why are we recommending this for diabetics? And the, the guest that we had at the time, and I'll try and uh, bring up his name maybe during the break, but he was a... Uh, uh, brilliant doctor. And he was making the case that this is pharma in action. Pharma gets doctors to say this, that, and the other so that they can stay in business. The more fat Americans we have, the more type two diabetes we have, the more other ills and ails that we have to fix and the more they sell. And it, it's a vicious cycle. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, then there was an airport worker in the Philippines. Speaking of the Philippines, our buddy Gil from the Philippines hasn't called in in a while. I hope he's okay. I'm putting out an APB on Gil from the Philippines. Gil, call in. I want to talk about this story with you. Oh, that's awesome. And I think Gil has called in. So we have found Gil, everybody. We're canceling the APB. Then we have a, 
well, I'm going to pose a question for this one. How do you get drugs and pornography into a prison? Well, I'll tell you the punchline to that one in a little bit. Uh, I think you're going to find it interesting. And if you didn't know, there's an NFL cheerleader that's trans. And wait till you hear what they compare their role uh, to becoming. Uh, I'm going to give you a little clue. It's a professional role. And uh, I think that's a pretty interesting story as well. Uh, and again, not an attack on trans people, just an attack on how they're comparing being a cheerleader to these other things. And I'm not downplaying cheerleaders. My daughter's a cheerleader. Anyway, I want to get into those stories plus your calls. And we have a bunch of people that have been on hold for a while. Let's go to Paul in Boise, Idaho. Paul on KBOI. Welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Thanks for taking my call. It's worth the my wait. Pleasure. I really enjoyed the show. Thank you, sir. You I appreciate your call. You have stimulating topics, which I I enjoy because it makes me think about something other than myself. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. So anyway, you, you in your last segment, you had that guest with you. You you'd brought up the FBI, and then of course you just brought up the guy that was uh, caught for, for bribing, being bribed mm-hmm. by the by the Russians. And you know we, we still have the same FBI in place. There's been no major um, exit of players in the FBI. And what right. what concerns me, and I, I think about this quite frequently, is when 24 rolls around and we're supposed to vote again, who is in charge of our, our security and to make them a free, fair election? But the FBI, they're the ones responsible for that, for this, for you and I to vote and to have our votes counted. And it bothers me that there has been no major changes in that area, and we're doomed to have another uh, 2020 catastrophe, I believe, if if some changes aren't made. You know, Paul, um, it's a legitimate concern. I'll say this. I think there are a lot of election security measures. Of course, these are every election is run by a county official somewhere. So you've got a county sheriff and... You've got the the Department of Justice, obviously, if, if it's going to be a federal charge. Um, the FBI would certainly be the investigating arm. But there's still local law enforcement and and people that are, you know, involved in the prosecution of election fraud and whatnot. So, I mean, I, I want to believe that it's we the people that are ensuring our elections. And I know that there's been issues in the past and we're seeing more come about again. Uh, we saw some significant changes. Uh, the The folks on the legal team for... Trump back in 2020 filed a case and they said, no, 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 uh, latches, you did it too late, we won't do it. And they wouldn't hear the cases. However, they brought the same case with a minor adjustment after the election was decided. And lo and behold, they made progress in that case, ultimately to, um, you know, question Act 77 in Pennsylvania. And they made some significant headway. Now, of course, last week or maybe earlier this week, I think it was last Friday, though, Um, We heard from the governor of Shapiro of of Pennsylvania saying everybody's registered to vote (laughs) again, setting the stage for an abundance of people that are eligible to vote because you're being automatically registered at the DMV as opposed to, you know, willfully requesting to register to vote. And again, the problem with that is if you have all these registered voters and only a third of your people are going to vote, you've got two thirds that are registered and are able to vote. 
And that's where the recipe for fraud comes into play because you've got these votes that you can use, whether it's, you know, through fraud or other or other means. Uh, and, and that's, you know, again, it's a potentiality for fraud. Whereas if you didn't register everybody and everybody, you know, I want to vote, I'm going to register, I'm going to vote. That decreases your voting universe so that you're pretty certain that this person that's registered is actually the person that's voting. And this is something that was brought up in the Carter Baker Commission. Uh, Secretary Jim Baker and uh, former President Jimmy Carter agreed that this was fraught with fraud, this practice of automatically registering everybody, doing uh, mass mail-in ballots. But it, it seemed, and it worked for years. Everybody was on board with that until it didn't work for them anymore. And now they said, no, that's exactly what we want to do. So yeah, I agree. It softens the security of our elections. And, but ultimately the FBI, I, I have as many gripes with them as you do, but I don't think they're the final arbiter of who's going to decide our election. I believe we, the people are people that are working at the polls, people that are going out to vote, uh, poll watchers, poll workers. Uh, I don't believe we're going to see a repeat of 2020. <clears throat> I don't think we saw that in the 2022 midterm where the Republicans took control of the House. Uh, so I, I, I'm positive. I'm I'm optimistic that while we'll never get rid of fraud, that's like saying we're going to eliminate crime or eliminate poverty or anything like that. I mean, you can always work to reduce these things. I don't know that we're going to get rid of them completely, but we can be cognizant of them and work towards getting rid of them. And I think we've made some significant headway in a lot of states. And I do think we're going to have a fair election. That's just my gut. I appreciate the call, Paul. Thank you for your kind words about the show as well. Paul in Boise, Idaho, listening on KBOI. Great station. Thank you for the call. Folks, we're going to get to the rest of your calls and more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Congratulations on just an amazing show. I know you've worked so hard in the industry and nobody deserves it more than you do. So I'm happy to see you really succeeding here. It's awesome. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, so how do you get pornography and drugs into a prison? You hire an Australian woman. Listen to this crazy story. So you've got a female drug trafficker, and she used a drone to deliver a USB drive containing pornography and more than $75,000 worth of opioids to an Australian prison where the unmanned aircraft crashed and now it's headed to court this week. <laughs> That's crazy. Her name is Cheyenne Pretzen. Uh, she's 27 years old. She appeared in Brisbane, Australia at their Supreme Court on Friday today for her sentencing after pleading guilty to two counts of aggravated supply of dangerous drugs in a correctional facility. Now, Pretzkin's uh, two co-defendants, 
Corey Sinclair and Bradley Knudsen, or Knudsen, excuse me, 33 and 37 years old, respectively, also pleaded guilty, and that's according to the Australian Associated Press. So that's how you get drugs and porn into a prison. That's crazy. Now, if you have a story like that, give me a call, 833-482-5337, because this is probably the most clever way I've heard. She was trying to get it into the prison yard to, I guess, somebody that was waiting for the drone to drop these things off. But somebody that should end up in prison, maybe in an Australian one, but probably in a jail in the Philippines, is an airport worker in the Philippines who was caught eating right out of people's uh, items and stashing them in her mouth. She stole $300 in bills. Listen to this. This airport worker in the Philippines seemingly swallows $300 in bills allegedly taken from a tourist. When they asked her, what are you doing? What are you putting in your mouth? She said, it was chocolate. (laughs) As if you're allowed to steal chocolate from a tourist instead of steal their money. Absolute insanity. Let's go to Gil. Uh, The APB has been lifted. Gil in Manila, Philippines. Welcome back, sir. How are you? Well, I'm I'm sorry to say that Gil's a pretty sick puppy. I was in the hospital for three weeks, pneumonia, but I'm home now. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm glad you're doing better. better. Yeah, but uh, several things. First of all, kudos to you. You've managed to change the whole face of this format of talk radio, bringing in a whole new generation of people, not just old guys like me, but a lot of younger people. And, of course, you you get your share of dingbats. You always will. But uh, you're doing a great job. Uh, secondly, Thank as you, far Gil. as broken homes, they don't have that problem here. There's no divorce. Once you're married, you're married. You can't get a divorce. Isn't that so how it's supposed to be? That tends to uh, keep people together. Yeah. And thirdly, now, Gil, do you know? Oh, go ahead. Make your point. Several weeks ago, and didn't wasn't able the. Um, the Iranian hostage deal. Oh, yeah. And spending four, $4 billion to get these people back is going to do nothing but encourage others to take Americans as hostage. Because for the longest time, mm-hmm. the United States had a policy they don't pay money for hostages. And. I think you're right, Gil. And when, you know, when you, when you not only, you know, kidnap people or whatever the case is and expect to get, you know, a prisoner exchange, which is why they do this in many places anyway, they're like, oh, let's just grab these people. You know, we'll, we'll get them back. Um, now that they know they can get their people back on an uneven trade and get $6 billion in sanctions back, it's going to be open season on Americans. And uh, you're right. Uh, not negotiating with terrorists has been a, a long held policy And I'm sure, you know, behind the scenes, concessions were made along the way. But by and large, that was the rule, not the exception. And sadly, it seems like that's um, turning on its head. Excellent point. Now, Gil, uh, I'm glad you're back in the fold because I want to ask you about this security officer at the Philippines airport who was shoving $300 in bills into her mouth uh, after snatching them from a tourist uh, from their belongings and whatnot. Um, 
do, do you know this person? Have you heard about the story? Gil, Paging Gil. Do we have Gil? We don't. We don't have Gil. Well, I guess Gil knows her. <laughs> sorry, Gil. I'm sorry your friend got caught out there. She's going to end up in an Australian prison selling porn and drugs. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, anyway, I appreciate the call, Gil. Really appreciate your kind words. And uh, I, I, it really means a lot to me. We're going to continue with your calls and more straight ahead. Uh, I wanted to circle back and uh, just remind you that uh, in the next segment, we're going to get into this CDC stuff. And I don't know if you remember, uh, not too long ago, we had a, uh, a clip that we heard. Uh, there's a lot of stories about fat people, right? There's a fat activist that was recently, um, you know, uh, being called out because she had supported some controversial Black Lives Matter stuff. And now she's been signed by Dove to a campaign. And we talked about that a few days ago. And a couple of months before that, there was another uh, fat activist. And I'm not describing the activist as being fat. They're called fat activists. They're, they're activists for the fat movement. And uh, she was talking about how people in America are fat phobic, which is tantamount to white supremacy because having a, a flat stomach is a symbol of white supremacy. And having a fat stomach means that you're a person of color. And I, I thought that was remarkable. So we're going to get to that audio and then we're going to talk about the CDC report that says obesity is on the rise in the United States. And honestly, that one is disappointing to hear, maybe not surprising, but disappointing being that there's so much of a focus on losing weight. We've had a number of doctors on the program that talk about these drugs like Ozempic and Manjaro and so many others that are helping you know people with type 2 diabetes or even people that are overweight with Wegovi and other drugs to lose weight. And they were even talking about something called Ozempic face because people were losing so much weight and there was a shortage on it because it was being prescribed all over the place. So anyway, stick around. We're going to talk about, we're going to get to the fat and skinny of it. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. America, welcome back. We're going to get to your calls and more momentarily. 833-482-5337. 833-4VALDEZ. And I want to get into this CDC report on obesity. But first, I want you to hear this clip of audio uh, from this fat activist uh, talking about what she calls fat phobia. Listen to this. My belief is that we should be centering the voices and experiences of the most marginalized people and communities at all times. So when I think about what fat liberation looks like to me, it looks like centering the voices and the experiences of those who live in and who maneuver through spaces and institutions in a fat body. It looks like making accessible spaces and having conversations that are aware of the fact that people have different bodies and that they are interacting with space and people and institutions and communities in a different way. 
fat liberation looks like fully embracing those differences and having those conversations instead of shying away from them. To learn more about fat liberation and the campaign for size freedom that Dove is supporting, visit dove.com forward slash size freedom. Tap in, join the campaign, support the campaign. This is important and we should all be talking about it. All right, so that's Zayana Bryant. She's a a fat liberation activist uh, saying we need to have accessible spaces. Uh, Makes me think of airlines, right? Uh, You know, should we be, should be, you know, special larger chairs for fat people that they don't have to pay any extra for just because you're fat. And, you know, it's an accommodation that we need to make because obesity, uh, the way she's positioning it, is needs to be like a a protected class or even... uh, a disability. And I, I agree that it is a disability. And I'm not saying fat people shouldn't fly. Uh, what I am saying is the normalization of being fat, and this is coming from a fat person, right? I'm still fat. I think I'm, you know, 202 pounds, but I was a lot fatter. And when, when I look at this, I think, you know, th- there was no benefit to being fat other than the joy of food, right? Food is just fantastic. And you, you know, when you're fat, you eat whatever you want. And it, with no, with no with reckless abandon, I should say. And I think this is problematic. And when we see this fat liberation movement and Dove signing on board, that, that's, you know, I think this is them headed towards their own Bud Light moment, as it's pointed out in the New York Post. But we have a real problem with people being fat. And the CDC has this report. 35% of adults in nearly half of the U.S. are obese. This is a big number and it's up. Listen to this. Obesity is becoming more prevalent in a growing number of states, according to new data from the CDC. The information shows that in 22 states in 2022, at least 35% of adults were obese. That's an increase from only 19 states back in 2021. That's a huge jump in a very little amount of time. The CDC noted that 10 years ago, there were no states that had adult obesity prevalence at or even above 35%. The data is from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, an interview survey conducted by the CDC and state health departments. So the survey participants were considered to have obesity if their body mass index was at least 30. Obesity was most common in Louisiana, Oklahoma, and West Virginia, where more than 40% of adults were obese. Now, I've been to Louisiana and West Virginia. I've not been to Oklahoma. I can tell you. The first thing that I saw when I got to West Virginia uh, through conversation with a cab driver and whatever was the prevalence of drugs. Yeah, I said, hey, what do you guys do for fun around here? It was like a Friday night. I wanted to go out. And he he told me, uh, what did he say? Oxycodone. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? He was like, oxy. That's what everybody does around here. Heroin. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, the second thing I noticed is when I checked into the hotel, Everybody, every human that I saw in this hotel, in the facility, in the neighboring restaurant were large, incredibly large. Now, it could have been happenstance, but I was just, I was like, am I in the fat section of town? This is wow. And it it just, it it was a shock to me. You know, I didn't see not one fit person. I was the skinniest person there at 200 and something pounds. At the time, I was probably 220. And I thought, man, this is crazy. So you look at this report and you think, wow, why are we getting here? It's because of people like Zayana Bryant with her fat liberation or the other young lady that we had, we had a clip of a while back where she was talking about fat phobia and how fat phobia equates to white supremacy. I think this is absolutely crazy. It's, it's a problem 
and we have to to not turn a blind eye. The same way we have a massive immigration problem, we have a growing problem with crime. America's on on a decline, and it's not good. No bueno. Let's go to the phones. Uh, let's go to Diane calling in from Chicago on WGN. Diane, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Oh, hi. Um, I, I was calling originally about the, the migrant thing, but you're, I don't hear your broadcast till 1 a.m., so I won't hear your entire you know, the entire show about that FBI guy and whatever. But sure. uh, what, really, on that subject, uh, voter fraud, I believe, voter ID is necessary. I've been an election judge. And I remember when everything was in a, like a book with the names, and I was on a, in a Republican primary, and only 35 people showed up. I really think um, actual um, machine governments, anything that is corrupt, benefits from a low turnout. That goes back to the, um, the control over um, in 1960 when FBI found fraud in Texas and Illinois. They actually found it with the recon committee. It was paid for by the Republicans to set it up to find out why Kennedy, why Nixon lost, lost. and why Ben Adamowski, Secretary of State. Anyway, um, I was going to say good for you for losing your weight and um, oh, keep up you. the good work. And also, I think I recall you talking on one of your other shows about a CPAC machine. Did you ever use those? You know, so I tried it um, when I was, uh, again, obese uh, in my early 20s. I, um, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. And my dad had sleep apnea and he wasn't obese, but he had a really big neck. He was a very muscular guy and had a big neck and they had prescribed one to him. So I went to the doctor and um, he he asked me, you know, do you want to try the machine? I said, well, I've actually already tried it. I borrowed my dad's machine for a couple of nights and I, I couldn't get used to this contraption strapped to my face. Now, I've been told by many who use it, you'll feel like a million bucks in the morning and you will um, you'll get used to it. You, you will develop a, um, an adjustment to having the, the mask on at night. But it, it really was not comfortable for me. And to the point where you know, the doctor gave me options, and he said, look, there's two ways out of this. You can use the machine forever, or you, we can do surgery called a UPPP. I don't know what it stands for, but it's something like uvula plasty, something, something, something with a P. And what they do is, in effect, they remove your uvula, the little bell that hangs in the back of your throat, and they also uh, remove your tonsils and I think adenoids, and then they also uh, remove any excess tissue in the airway, and then they tighten it all up so that it, nothing flaps while you're breathing, and it eliminates your snoring and allows you to breathe better and eliminates sleep apnea. And But the, the catch was, he said, that stuff, will your uvula won't grow back and your tonsils won't grow back, but the tissue where we opened up the airway will grow back. And he said, if you continue to gain weight, that would, um, you know, make this thing null and void. So you have to lose weight in order for this to maintain. And it worked for many, many years. Um, I feel like now, you know, it's been 20 years since I've had that surgery and that's what I opted for. And I think I'm probably due for another sleep study to go back and figure out, do I still have sleep apnea? Um, especially now with these late night hours that I keep. So it's one of those things. <laughs> my producer just sent me the uh, the name of the surgery. It's called a uvulopalatopharyngeoplasty. Uh, a lot easier to say UPPP. <laughs> uh, but yeah, ultimately I have used the CPAP and uh, very uncomfortable for me, but I know it works. And now here we are 20 years later and they have this new device. Maybe we'll bring a doctor on and I'll use me as the case study. But there's a, a doctor that, I mean, uh, um, 
a new treatment where they put this something or like a little zapper, almost like a pacemaker, I think, where they put it a small implant into your chest that when it detects that you are not breathing the way you're supposed to while you're sleeping, which is what sleep apnea is, the sudden stop of breathing during your sleep, it sends a little zap, kind of wakes you up to start breathing again. And I hear it's very successful. I, I know one person that has it and I have not asked them since they've gotten it installed how effective it is. Uh, so I intend to do that. But yeah, that's my story about CPAP, Diane. Well, okay, well, there, I read that a, w- a woman was suing that one of those CPAP people because apparently they're defective and she was she became, it was some kind of particles or whatever. So, the, you know, the, when you go to the doctors, then they cover it up by having another operation. There's this, I'm, I'm not saying cover, you know, that I have any yeah. real proof. But Fix it, yeah. when you're advertising these things on the radio and that, then they say they have this, I think because they they themselves have been, you know, recommending that CPAC, and now they're to cover their act. They're having this operation, but I don't know if that's all good. Did your dad benefit from? I mean, did your dad ever have a real horrible effect from? No, actually, he had a wonderful experience. No, it was really great for him. He um, again, well, he never I mean, really he liked complained. The machine, but how? But how do you know? What did he? Did he pass away? He did. Um, he did eventually pass away. Uh, and honestly, he had a stroke, which is kind of what they say you have to use the CPAP for. I, I can say honestly that uh, the last, you know, maybe six, seven years of his life, he really would barely wear the machine. He would go to sleep with it on and he'd wake up with it off. He would just rip it off in the middle of the night. And, it, and we'd strap it on pretty tight to help him out. But <clears throat> ultimately, you know, that's the consequence. They say if you don't use this machine, you can have a stroke because you it's a prolonged lack of oxygen to the brain when you stop breathing in the middle of the night. Uh, I don't know if that contributed to it. He also had some um, uh, heart arrhythmia that they believe also could have led to to his stroke. Uh, ultimately, I mean, he was 80 years old and it's uh, the whole thing is, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I learned as both my parents passed that the reality of life is that people get old, they get sick and they die. Even if you take good care of yourself, you can live a little older, but you're eventually going to die. And, and you know, that I had to chalk it up to that's kind of how life goes. But he did have a good experience with the CPAP. Um, he, you know, he never really complained of waking up groggy or anything like that. But uh, I noticed that he was more alert the days that, you know, he used it. And he used it for, I don't know, at least a good 20 years when he started using it till till when he really didn't use it anymore. So, Diane, thank you for your call. I appreciate that. And you're right, that CPAP story, um, the suit was over um, her getting sick from breathing in uh, a tube that wasn't either cleaned or had some uh, something in it that sh- it shouldn't have had in it, a microplastic or something like that, that eventually got this woman sick. Thank you for the call, Diane. I appreciate it. We continue with your calls and more straight ahead. Big shout out to Chicago and WGN. I'm coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S.
No hair, no care, and live on the air. It's Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. And we talked about the fat of it. I want to talk about the skinny of it. Listen to this headline. First trans NFL cheerleader compares role to becoming a doctor. He follows up saying, no one will stop this show. I'm setting things up for the younger generation of trans cheerleaders. Now, listen, the the story here for me is that you're comparing being an NFL cheerleader to being a doctor. I would never compare being a radio host to being a doctor. Even on my best day, I'm not saving anybody's life. I mean, it's it's absolute insanity to compare yourself in, in a role like that. Uh, to, to being a doctor. But it's the self-importance of it for me. Her name, Justin, or excuse me, Justine Lindsay, the NFL's first cheerleader to identify as transgender, wants to influence the next generation and compared becoming a member of the Carolina Panthers Top Cats cheerleading squad to other accomplishments like becoming a doctor or a nurse, saying, I want to change the narrative for my trans sisters and brothers just to let them know that if you have a goal, go for it, the cheerleader said. Turn that dream into a reality. Be an NFL cheerleader or a doctor or a nurse or whatever you set your mind to. Now, listen, I do agree with that statement. Uh, And I don't see it as so much of a comparison. If it was, then, you know, it's a little over the top. But I agree. Look, if that was her goal, his goal, whatever, um, go for it. Yeah, good on you to achieve your goals. I think everybody should work in something that they love like the old saying, you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But I thought that was an interesting headline uh, because I've never met a cheerleader that was, you know, changing the world. And I think doctors every single day change the world. You come into an emergency room with COVID uh, and you're above 65 and obese and have a medical history that's uh, challenging, you're going to need a good doctor because you're in the danger zone. Uh, or anything. You know, I mean, everybody deals with a number of health ailments. And uh, I always take my hat off to doctors. I think they do a lot of great work. And um, they're they're few and far between lately. It's harder and harder to find doctors. And it's even harder and harder to find really good doctors. So uh, a comparison like that would be um, something I would object to. But I want to get to your calls on the fat and the skinny. Let's go to the phones. Uh, let's go to Zanesville, Ohio. Check in with our buddy Paul on WHIZ. Paul, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Uh, good evening, Rich. Yeah, you know, um, I, I just turned 59 this month. So happy I birthday! Still a full head of hair. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, and I'm I, I'm uh, five foot eleven, five foot eleven and a half, maybe. I think I'm shrinking with age. I, they they say you do <laughs> that. I don't know, but yeah. I weigh 140 pounds, so I'm on the other side of that. But, you know, I, I've had a lot of friends in my life that were uh, heavier, we'll say, and they are just so jolly, so fun. You know, <laughs> most of my friends to this day are, are heavier people. I mean, um, I, I just I just love them. My buddy Joel, um, he died a few years back, and he, he went to lose weight, and he went clear down to like – he was like 260, 270 pounds. He went clear down to like 160 pounds or 150 pounds. And then Paul, he, hang know, on a second. He, he I'm happy. being forced to take a break 
by my producers. They're banging on the door telling me I got to take a break. Don't go anywhere. We're going to pick up with your buddy, Jewel, and his uh, and his weight because I, I want to relate to that. Plus, we have more calls coming in from Colorado and other places. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're going to do a speed round here. We got three calls in three minutes. We've got to knock it out. Probably about 30 seconds each call because, you know, the music plays and they kick us out. Uh, Let's finish up with Paul in Zanesville. So, Paul, tell us about your fat friend who's very jolly. Uh, Yeah, well, Jules dead now. He he got uh, into drugs after he um, um, started this weight loss thing. And I know some people right now that are on this diabetic drug that they're trying to lose weight with it, but it's for diabetes. And, um, you know, he just got into those drugs real bad, and and he's gone. And Joel was the best buddy I've had in, like, years and years and years. And he's gone. But when he was heavy set, he was one of the best people. I don't know. Maybe it's a psychological thing, a physical thing. I don't know. Not not to jump in, but I I just want to say this. I think, you know, when, when I was fat and oblivious to my health, um, I ate whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And when you eat certain foods, mainly carbs, you get such a high level of dopamine. You get so happy. You're just like, man, that's great. You have this feeling of satiety all the time because you're full. You just stuffed your face. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, you're just happy, happier because it's like being a drug addict. <laughs> Paul, thank you for the call, brother. Let's go to Dylan in Durango, Colorado. Quickly, brother, KDGO, go. Yeah, I just want to say that I don't think we should be mis- mixing uh, our ideology and facts. At the end of the day, medicine is medicine. Sure, it has a lot of room for improvement, but we've got solid knowledge these days. At the end of the day, we should not be justifying perspectives on race based off of whether or not someone's fat or I think you're right, Dylan. We should leave race, politics, all of it out of it. People that are fat and, and are obese and unhealthy, they should be treated by the science. And we should get healthy. Good point. Thank you for the call from KDGO. Hasta la próxima, America. I'll see you on Monday. Every story eventually comes to an end. This June, hear the final episode of season two of the hit podcast series, In the Red Clay, Durham. In the Red Clay tells the unbelievable true story of Billy Sunday Burt, the most dangerous man in Georgia history. In the podcast that people are calling Riveting, incredibly moving, captivating, and addicting. Binge seasons one and two of In the Red Clay now, wherever you listen.